Well, as I looked around the congregation this morning, I didn't see many uh, missing fingers or eye patches. So I trust you all had a safe and happy, enjoyable 4th of July, celebrating with family and food. At least a little bit of food, right? That's what it's all about. But we are going to exercise a little bit of freedom this morning. We are not having a 4th of July message, and we're not talking about freedom. So we're going to take the uh, freedom to do as God leads us to do, and we're going to begin a study together in the book of Philippians. So go ahead, if you would, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. While you're turning, let me just uh, extend greetings from Pastor Kenny. I spoke with him yesterday evening. He said the... uh, Pain is getting to the point where he can now swallow more than Jello. They haven't come up with a good steak and baked potato flavored Jello yet, so he is grateful to be off of the Jello diet. Uh, but he said the most excruciating thing that he's tried to do right now is talk. So he's still got a ways to go, and there's still quite a bit of pain there. But he covets your prayers and thanks you for those so far. So do just continue to remember he and Karen in this recovery process. As we get into the book of Philippians, four chapters, it's not a long letter to the church there in Philippi, but it is a letter that is packed with content and packed with a lot of good things for us. So we're going to take the next four weeks and cover those four chapters together as we look at this, uh, are we already having technology issues? No, there we go, just a delay. As we look at this book of joy And if you're there with me this morning, before we start reading, I want to give you just a little bit of background, because as we study this book, there are going to be a few things that you need to know and understand. So let's cover a few of the first things. Number one, the city. Philippi was a colony that was established outside of what was the Roman Empire proper at its founding, yet they enjoyed the special privilege of the fact that people who were born there were full Roman citizens, and they prided themselves on that a great deal. It became a very wealthy colony. There was a lot of money that was centered there. In fact, some of the trade and some of the things that they traded were well-known throughout the entire empire and brought a lot of wealth to this region. Along with the idea of being Roman citizens, one of the things that was unique about uh, Philippi and the excavation there is as they were digging, they began to find on uh, stone tablets and stone what almost appeared to be sculptures around the center of town, what looked like long lists of resumes and accomplishments. We've come to discover that people in Philippi greatly, greatly uh, enjoyed titles and prestige, and reputation. So as any type of official title or elected office was bestowed upon them, it would be inscribed on these tablets next to this person's name with their official title and posted in town for everyone to see. Because your clout, your standing in that society, and that city, became something that you could be proud of and hang your hat on. And not only brought your family honor, but you honor and reputation as well. So not only were they very concerned about wealth and material things that they had that made them prosper, but they were very, very much enamored with their standing in society and who they were. Very much like today, we concern ourselves about how many zeros are on our paycheck or the titles that are attached to our name or what letters we can affix as suffixes out there beyond our name as we make sure we sign every letter with that and make sure everyone knows just who they are. Uh, 
I don't have any titles to my name, so I can't fully understand except for on one occasion. While in seminary, I would get asked to lead the devotional part of our chapel services from time to time. And they would always print up a newsletter on Tuesday with all of the events and the menu for the day. That was the real important thing, right, in the cafeteria, especially Catfish Thursdays. And so they would always print those things up, but they would always have the name of whoever the speaker was in chapel and the devotional leader in chapel. And they uh, printed out one of these on official seminary letterhead that said Dr. Travis Rucker. So that was it. I was done with my seminary career. They had bestowed upon me the title of doctor. That's all I needed. I was done. But that's the closest I've ever come to having any title attached to my name. But the people here in Philippi were very much enamored with those type of things. And they wanted to flaunt those things and wanted to make sure everyone knew. You say, why is that such a big deal? We're going to see here in just a minute. As Paul is writing this letter back to the church that was founded in the city and talking about where it is they're to find their joy. What you need to understand about this church is that during Paul's missionary journeys, this church was founded. We can see that in Acts chapter 16. As he ventures into this area, he runs across a lady by the name of Lydia who hears the gospel very readily and accepts it and begins to support Paul and his ministry there in the area. And we see a church begin to grow up around this beginning ministry there that he had. If you remember uh, in that same chapter, the Philippian jailer, As Paul was arrested because of his preaching in the area and the confrontation that was there, he was thrown into prison. And if you remember this daring late-night rescue, supernaturally, as God delivers them from prison, the Philippian jailer comes and sees that the gates of the prison are open and off their hinges in disarray, and he fears that all the prisoners have escaped. And Paul calls to him and says, Do yourself no harm, we're all still here. So he takes Paul to his home. And inquires about this gospel that Paul has been arrested for preaching. And it says the Philippian jailer and his entire household were saved. So we see the beginnings of this church as Paul is working there and this stop in his missionary journey. So this is the church that he's writing to. It's a church that had always been supportive of him. It's a church that was supporting him whenever he had nothing and had no contacts in the region. It's a church that continued to support him throughout his later journeys and now in his imprisonment in Rome. And this man that is writing, the author of this book, is Paul. It's that same Paul who was raised Saul of Tarsus, who was an upstanding Jew, and according to his own account, was more zealous of the law than anyone else. And according to the law, he was blameless. It was the same Saul who had left Jerusalem with letters giving him the authority to go to Damascus and arrest Christians that he found there and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. It's that same Saul who encountered Jesus Christ in a blinding light on the road to Damascus, who was converted and who gave his life to the ministry of the gospel, whose name was changed to Paul, as we know him and see him address himself in this letter, who really took on a ministry to the Gentiles and began to spread the gospel throughout all of the known reaches of the world. So this is the man that's writing this letter back to this church. And the setting is during his imprisonment in Rome. Paul, through the course of his ministry and the preaching of the gospel and the confrontations that he's had with non-believers and Jews who want to teach counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the personhood of Christ and who and what he was, because of these confrontations, these run-ins, Paul has found himself arrested He's made his appeal to 
Caesar as a Roman citizen to be heard essentially by the high court of appeals in that day. So he finds himself in house arrest in Rome. He's not in the typical prison and what we would think of as a prison in his time there. He's now rented a home. He finds himself on house arrest. They didn't have the nice little electronic ankle monitors that we think of today or are glamorized in movies today for house arrest. No, his ankle monitor was attached on the other end to an ankle shackle of a Roman guard who would assure that he was there in the home staying where he was supposed to. During this house arrest, Paul was not allowed to preach publicly, but that didn't stop him from preaching, and it didn't stop people from coming to see him and ask him questions and to hear him teach and preach there from this home. But while he's there, Paul wrote several letters to churches that he had founded earlier on in his ministry, and this is one of those letters. The occasion is that he's getting very close to his trial, where one of Two outcomes could probably be predicted. Either he'll be set free, he'll be sent back out where he'll continue his ministry, or he'll be sentenced to execution. So the time is drawing close, Paul feels, but during this time, the Philippian church has decided to support him, not just in their prayers and not just through encouragement, but they've taken up a collection. They want to help Paul out physically, and help sustain his ministry in a very physical and fiscal way. And so they've sent one of their own, most likely an elder at the church there in Philippi by the name of Epaphroditus. They've sent him with this gift and their encouragement and their love to go and see Paul and minister to him while he's there waiting trial in Rome. So Paul writes this letter as a response to send back to them after Epaphroditus has arrived. But he doesn't just send them a thank you. Instead, he sends them an encouragement And sends them some things that we also need to hear today. A couple more things that we need to look at. In this book, we see this big idea of joy. Hence the title of this series that we've started today, the book of joy. Almost 20 times throughout this book, Paul uses the word joy, rejoice, and gladness. Now, if you think back about Paul's journeys and Paul's ministry... If anyone had a reason not to be full of joy, it would be Paul. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he gives just a brief list of the things that he's encountered during his ministry. Things like being chased from city to city, being beaten by rulers, not rulers, but rulers, being stoned and left for dead outside the city gates, being shipwrecked. All of these things have occurred to Paul, many of them on more than one occasion, all because he's ventured to carry the gospel of Christ to those who don't believe. If anyone had a reason not to be full of joy, Paul had suffered more than many of us will suffer in a lifetime. You go on into 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh. He doesn't name it. We don't know exactly what it is. We have some guesses and some suspicions, but Paul never names this thing. We simply know it's something that's there, something that's bothering him, something that's an irritation, something that seems to hinder him and would hinder most of us and stop most of us in our tracks. But he's prayed to God to take it away and prayed to God to take it away, but God has said, no, I'm going to leave it there. It's going to keep him humble, it's going to keep him dependent on God, and it's going to keep him living in the realization that God's grace is sufficient for whatever this thing is. 
So again, if anyone has any reason not to be full of joy, not only has Paul been suffering because of things that have been happening to him, but Saul has also been suffering with this thing internally, personally, whatever it is that he's carrying around. So Saul has every reason to be bitter. Saul has every reason to be upset. Saul has every reason to be angry. And yet, nearly 20 times in this short book, he talks about joy. What's interesting is there's another word that occurs 16 times in these same four chapters. Words in their various forms that all mean remind, think, mind, remember. You'll find those words 16 times here. And there's a connection, and it's a connection that we're going to venture to look at a little bit today and as we go through the study of this book. What was the secret of Paul's joy? How do we, when we're facing suffering, how do we, when we're facing tough circumstances, how do we, when we're just going through day-to-day life, being accosted by the brokenness of this world, how do we hold on to joy? How do we live full of joy? How do we see that play out in our ministry, in our attitudes, in our interactions with people? How does it become one of those characteristics that when people think about us, They say that is a person that truly knows joy, not happiness, but that is a person that truly knows joy. I think Paul's secret, as we'll see as we go on today, is this idea of getting our mind right. Now, we are not talking about Christian positive thinking or a say it and create it prosperity type gospel. We're not just talking about, you know, if you build it, they will come or say it and achieve it, any of these type things. Instead, we're looking at something that goes deeper. Something we see just briefly in Proverbs 23, 7. There in verses 6 and 7 where Solomon is writing to his son, he's cautioning him throughout the chapter of different people to be wary of and how not to associate with certain people. When he gets to a selfish man, in verse 7 he says this, As the selfish man thinks in his heart, so he is. If you go back to the Hebrew, that that phrase, thinks in his heart, talks about as a man reckons in his soul, so he is. In other words, as I look at myself and I look at myself in relation to God and this world and creation and purpose and the things that are going on in my life, as I reconcile those things together and form not only my perspective of the world, but essentially really who I am and my identity, that's what I am. It's the same for all of us, right? Whatever we fancy ourselves, whatever we think of ourselves, that's, that's how we act and that's what we do. Who we think we are and how we think we are informs the way we see the world and the way we interpret things. And so it's more than just self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, it's more than just creating our own destiny. It's how we identify, how we, within our soul, within our being, and who we are created to be, how we reconcile that with God and who He says we are and what He says we're to be about. And where we come down as we wrestle with those things and we reconcile those things together, that's what we are and that's what we do. And so we see that here with Paul. How did someone who had suffered so much find so much joy? And it has to do with getting his mind right. And we're going to see that as we go through this together today. So begin reading with me in verse 3. As we look at this idea of praying in joy. 
that begins to be the foundation of joy in Paul's life. And we'll see that. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering what? Prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I longed for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, in prayer, Paul finds this to be true. We find joy And the fact that there is one goal, the advancement of the gospel. The advancement of the gospel. That's what it's all about. Notice what he says in 4. Always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He has partners. He has partners in this ministry. There's a unity within the body of Christ. Paul, regardless of his circumstance and where he is, is not alone. Not only has his Lord promised to never leave him or forsake him, but even if he is chained in prison and unable to go out and do the ministry that God had called him to do, he knows that he is not alone. He knows that there are others that are out there, other members of the body of Christ, who are pursuing the same goal and the same end who are striving to get the gospel out there. And so even though he is there in prison, removed from the churches that he's founded, removed from those believers that he has discipled, removed from those people who have supported his ministry, removed from those people who are praying for him, removed from home, removed from any semblance of family, even though he finds himself completely isolated away, he knows that he's not alone. Because the kingdom of God transcends physical boundaries. And the body of Christ is not limited in space and time. Paul knows that he's part of a ministry. He's part of a movement. He's part of a kingdom that is bigger than the circumstances in which he finds himself. That no matter what is happening to him, no matter what his circumstances are, the kingdom is still advancing. His role may have changed, but he has partners in Christ. For this time and for the time being, Paul's ministry is praying for those who are on the field doing what it is that he longs to do. And there are seasons in life in which we find ourselves unable to do the things that we feel most compelled to do. Unable to do the things that we desire to do. Unable to do the things anymore that we used to do. Yes, I said some of us are getting old. But that doesn't mean that we're alone. That doesn't mean that we don't have a place. That doesn't mean that there's no ministry left to be done. And Paul finds joy in praying for those who are out there doing what he longs to do. He finds joy in praying for those who are doing the things that he has trained them and taught them to do. 
part of that joy comes just in knowing that he's not alone. There are others. But part of that joy comes in anticipation of what they're going to do. Notice what he's praying. He's not just praying that through them he would make a name for himself. He's not praying for these Philippian believers that somewhere in the square in town someone would erect a statue that would have their name and how many converts they've won. No, what is he praying for? He realizes that true joy comes from the expansion of the kingdom, from the expansion of the gospel. So notice what he prays. He's praying for them, first of all, for love. But it's not just a superficial, feel-good kind of love. That love is rooted in knowledge and in discernment. In other words, as they're learning more about Christ, as they're growing in Him, as they're studying the Scriptures, as they're molding their life to what they're finding and reading there, they're realizing more who they are, they're realizing more who their partners are, they're realizing more what this body of Christ is and what it truly means to be a part of it. As they're zeroing in on who God has called them to be, They're getting more and more single-minded. The goal and the focus for all of them becomes the same thing. And as my goal and your goal is narrowed down, it becomes more and more the same thing. And the more that we realize that, the more I appreciate what it is that you do, the more you appreciate what it is that I do, the more our differences, instead of mattering to us about whether or not we can fellowship, the differences become, oh, God is going to use that difference in you in this way. He's going to use this difference in me in this way. But it's all going to be for the same end, the spread of the gospel. And as we grow in that understanding, not only of who we are, but of each other and our places in the body of Christ, he says, I'm praying that that love will continue to grow. And as that love for each other grows, you begin to find joy in partnering with other people for the expansion of the kingdom. But then he goes on, he prays for something else. He says, praying this, that your love grows so that you can determine what really matters and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. He's praying for purity amongst the body. Because he realizes, he realizes that we're one organism. That we have one goal. That we have one call. And to be pure, we can't be sinning against each other. We can't be making each other stumble. We can't be getting in each other's way. We can't be worried about petty little things and jealousies and who gets what and who gets recognized there and who gets to be chairman and who's co-chair and who's elected this year to this position and who's on this committee and who's on, that, who's on the praise team this week. They get to sing three times more than I do. They get to do... It's not about that. It's not about that. And yet, the Philippian church was founded in a culture what? Where prestige and title and accomplishment and things mattered. And Paul's saying, if you want to find joy, we're going to take all of that and flip it on its head. And instead of praying for your success and your accomplishments and your accolades and your recognition, I'm praying that you lose yourself to find yourself as a member of the body of Christ with one goal and one purpose and one accolade that matters. And that's this. The gospel is God's glory. 
That's the accolade. That's the one thing that counts. That's the one thing that matters. That's the only, the only thing that needs to be said about us when we're gone. What did we do for the glory of God and His kingdom? Not as individuals, but as the church. And so Paul says, I find joy in praying. Because even though I can't be out there doing, even though I can't be planning and I can't be watering, from my situation and my circumstance, I'm finding joy in supporting you in prayer. And writing to you as an encouragement. And praying that God will continue to grow you to where you need to be. Because I know that I'll see fruits, not just from my labor, but from yours. And it's all the same fruit. The glory of God. So Paul chooses not to dwell on his situation and the circumstances. Not to think about all the things that he can't do. Not to think about all the things that he's missing out on. Not to think about the raises everyone else is getting and the promotions everyone else is getting and the big fancy party that's being thrown in someone else's honor. No, he says, my job right now during this time is to see you at your best. To do anything I can to see you and have you at your best. And that needs to be the attitude that we adopt. That needs to be the attitude that we adopt. What can I do to support my brothers and sisters in Christ to see them be all that God has created them to be? That's where we begin to find joy. Because it's no longer about us and our circumstances and our accolades. But it's about His kingdom. And the more time we spend in prayer for others, the more time we spend in prayer about the kingdom, the more that realization sets in and becomes our reality. Paul also suffers in joy. He suffers in joy. Continue with me as we read. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul found joy in his suffering, Because he knew his suffering was for the advancement of the gospel. He understood something here that we need to wrap our minds around. Look in verse 13. Notice how he refers to his imprisonment. Different translations translate it different ways, but this preposition in the Greek, regardless, is instrumental. In other words, it's it's the method, it's the purpose. He says his imprisonment is in Christ or for Christ or on behalf of Christ because of Christ. 
But they all mean the same thing. We find the same sentiment in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1 where Paul talks about the same time in prison in another letter to another church and he says that he is a prisoner of Christ. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of his circumstances. He's not a prisoner of this world. He's not a prisoner of the Jewish leaders. He's not a prisoner of those who oppose the preaching of the gospel. No, he's a prisoner of Christ. And here he says he's in prison for Christ, not because of Christ. He's in there for Christ, as an instrument of Christ. He understands something that we need to understand today. We don't view Christ through our circumstances, but we view our circumstances through Christ. That makes all the difference in the world. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about as we reckon in our souls, so we are. When I look at what's happening to me in this world and the circumstances in which I find myself and the situations that I find myself facing, I need to look at those situations and circumstances through the lens of Christ. Not the other way around. Paul sits back and he looks at his time in prison and he looks at what's going on. And he could look at it as time being wasted. He could look at it as the missionary journeys he wanted to take. He could look at this trip to Rome as a complete bust because for long he had wanted to go to Rome to preach with them and share with them the gospel and to see fruit there among the church in Rome. But instead he finds himself being taken to Rome in a prison ship and now in house arrest. This trip to Rome is a complete wash and not anything at all what he was planning or had hoped it to be. He could have been disgusted. He could have been upset. But instead, he sees it for what it is. He's exactly where God has allowed him to be for God's purposes and God's intentions. And God is going to work in the midst of it. Notice what he says has happened. Even in the prison... He sees that he's there for Christ. Who was Paul chained to 24 hours a day? See, if you were paying attention, just a Roman guard. One of the praetorian, one of the imperial soldiers. One of those who served the emperor. This is an elite group. And one of them was stationed there to keep Paul in house arrest. Can you imagine being one of those big, burly, hardened Roman soldiers on your second shift of Paul duty? The last time you were there, all this guy did was talk about this guy named Jesus and about what he had done and all these myths and these superstitions and people continually come to him and ask questions and he preaches and teaches. You all know Paul could preach for hours and hours and hours, right? And he he had a captive audience. People were coming to see him, to pick his brain and to hear him speak. And so Paul would go on as long as anyone would listen. And you're that poor guard who's already been chained to him once a couple of days ago. And now it's your turn on rotation again. Can you imagine the attitude as you're walking in? Anything else, right? But Paul says he's there for Christ. And what begins to happen is these men are listening to the gospel being preached and taught. 
And as they're seeing Paul carry on with joy despite the circumstances that he finds himself in, he begins to see converts among the Praetorian Guard. And word begins to get out. He begins to see people from Caesar's own household get curious about what he's teaching and preaching. And they're coming to him on house arrest. Elsewhere, Paul refers to the church in Caesar's home. Paul's having an effect. Paul's seeing souls saved. Paul's not looking at his imprisonment as something that's been forced on him. Instead, Paul's looking at his imprisonment as an opportunity to be used by Christ. He can't get out on the field where he longs to be, but out on the field is not the only place where lost people are. There are lost people all around, and Paul's taking advantage of every one of those opportunities. You might not be where you want to be, where you always thought you would be. You might not be doing what you always dreamed that you would do. You might not be living where you always thought you would live. You might not be living with the means that you always desired. But the question is, how are you going to view that? Is that something that you've been inflicted with? Or are you right where God intends to use you? Do you find yourself where you are as a tool for Christ and the expansion of the kingdom? Because depending on how you choose to look at it, depending on how you reckon that in your soul, you can either let it bring you joy for the fruit that you're seeing where you are, or you can let it steal your joy for the worry about where you're not. Where's your mind and how do you choose to reckon that in your soul? But Paul also, even in the midst of his imprisonment and suffering, sees that he's advancing the gospel beyond prison. He refers to these young men, talking about young men that have come to him that he's had the opportunity to preach to and the opportunity to teach and disciple, even there among house arrest. It says because they see his joy and his imprisonment and the fact that his imprisonment won't even stop him from preaching the truth, they're getting emboldened, right? They're they're being emboldened to go out and preach So while Paul can't go out on the field, he is encouraging an entire new generation of young believers to go out and to carry the gospel outside the prison where Paul can't go. And so while Paul is not seeing that fruit outside the prison firsthand, he's rejoicing with them and finding joy as they're coming back to him and telling him about who they have been able to share the gospel with and the converts they've been able to make. It brings him tremendous joy even though he's had to take on another role. Even though he's had to change what he's always done for years and the way he's always done it, we can still find joy and change instead of suffering. But he also addresses those who are taking the opportunity of Paul being locked up in prison to use their ambition to gain a name for themselves something the Philippians knew all too well. Any opportunity to advance yourself. Here's Paul, who's been the tip of the spear. Here's Paul, who's a name that everyone recognizes. Here's a Paul who's known the Roman Empire over. Now imprisoned and unable to be out on the field. Here's my chance to step up and get some of the limelight. 
Here's my chance to step up and fulfill all of those preaching obligations that he won't get to do. Here's my chance to go and be the conference speaker since Paul can't be there this year. And Paul says, even though they're doing it to my distress, even though they're preaching the gospel in spite, it's still Christ. So even though they're trying to heap suffering upon me by stealing my title, my accolades, they're still proclaiming Christ. The kingdom can still expand. And after all, that is the one goal, right? So even in the midst of this type of personal suffering and struggle, Paul still finds joy in the fact that he's able to spread the gospel where he is, He's encouraging others to spread the gospel where he can't go. And even those who are spreading the gospel for the wrong reasons are still spreading the gospel. It's a win-win-win. But he goes on, he says, For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Now notice this, but I am hard-pressed. This is not a light affliction. This is not a light burden. This is not a light decision that he's wrestling with. This is something that is bearing down on his soul. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is, notice, very much better. Yet to remain one in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul realizes this, that simply remaining is suffering. And sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we think there's nothing here left. There's no reason for me to continue on. The best thing right now would be if God would just come and just take me home. It would end the suffering. I would be out of here. I wouldn't have this weight that I feel on me all the time. Think about it. If Paul goes to court and he's released, he says to remain means more fruitful labor for me. But we know how hard it's been for Paul to see the fruit that he's had. If he's released from prison, what he's not saying is because he's choosing to look at his situation through Christ Instead of through Christ, through his situation, what Paul really would be able to say is this. If I'm released, that means more missionary journeys and more preaching and more spreading the gospel, which means more imprisonments and more beatings and more stonings and more other things that I haven't even faced yet. And this thorn in the flesh is not getting any easier to bear with age. And it's hard to keep going. But my life is the gospel. And so if I remain, it's more fruitful work. But it's work. 
remaining is suffering. But, he says, it's very much better if I could just go and be with Christ. But, God's chosen to lead me here. And even in the suffering of remaining, there's still a reason for joy. Because my persistence, my continued work, my continued labor, my prayers for you, my encouragement of you, my teaching you, brings joy. And I do it all so that your joy may grow in the faith. Think about it. As these believers that Paul was writing to saw him sticking it out and saw his joy in the midst of suffering and saw his continued determination in the midst of suffering, it was growing their faith. And in growing their faith, they're experiencing joy because they're seeing the kingdom expanded. Others look at the testimony of your life. They look at how you suffer. They look at how you persist. They look at how you carry on. They look at how you reckon within your soul and determine to see your circumstances through Christ. And it brings joy to them because it increases their faith. If nothing else, your persistence through that hard time that you're going through right now. You're carrying on with joy and resolve to do whatever you can for the advancement of the kingdom is growing other believers. And you get to be a partaker in that fruit as well because of your part in your ministry to them. But Paul says remaining and suffering does something else. It becomes a confirmation. In this world, we will have trouble or suffering. In this world, we will have trouble. Why? If Christ faced persecution and suffering, those of us who bear his name and carry his gospel face persecution and suffering. What did James say? Brothers, count it all joy as you face various trials. Because there are going to be trials. There are going to be trials. That's unavoidable. But Paul tells these brothers and sisters in Philippi this. Verse 29, for it has been given to you on Christ's behalf. Notice that choice of words there. It's been given to you or granted you. It's a gift. It's an honor. What was the Philippian culture so hung up on? Those badges of honor, those titles, right? Paul's saying, here's the badge of honor that's been given to you. You're suffering on behalf of Christ. If you're having an effect for the kingdom, if you're seeing fruit, if you're seeing the gospel spread, if you're seeing the kingdom enlarged, you will have suffering. The enemy is not going to set back and allow you to be effective and unhindered. He's not going to allow you 
to spread the gospel, to see people come into the kingdom and not try to discourage you and not hold you back. And Paul says, when these things happen, here is your accolade. Here is your badge of honor. That's what you should be seeking. I think in the book of Acts, chapter 5, some of the disciples were out preaching and arrested. They were hauled in and stood trial, and they were beaten. And they were instructed to go out and not to proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. And after they were dismissed, it says, they went their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They had the right understanding and the right perspective. Count it all joy when you face various trials. For when you do, you know you're doing something right. You know you're about the kingdom business. You know the enemy's worried about your effectiveness. You know he's worried about the encouragement you're bringing to others as they see you effective in your suffering. So he just keeps piling it on and piling it on. The question is, where's your mind? Where's your mind? I don't, I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't know what your suffering is. Some of you I know a little bit. I know a little bit of what you're going through, a little bit of what you're dealing with right now. But I guarantee you, you're suffering more than you've let on or you've told anyone. Some of you all, you're suffering and you haven't told anyone. You just figure you'll deal with it. Pick it up and carry on. But we're all suffering with something. We're all struggling with something. The enemy is accosting us all with something. The question is, is how do you choose to see it? Are you looking at your circumstances through Christ or are you looking at Christ through your circumstances? Are you finding the joy in Christ that gets you through? that keeps you struggling forward, that keeps you ministering? Are you finding the joy that comes through, even though you might have had to change gears and change ministry and you're not doing exactly what you wanted to do, you're still finding something to do? You're still looking for ways to encourage others or spread the gospel yourself? Or have you set back and said, I can't take it anymore. God, just get me out of here. That's it, I'm done. Seems like every time I try to do something for you, it seems like every time I take one step forward, it seems like every time something starts to go right and starts to go the way that I wanted it to go, something else happens. He says, rest assured, you're going to struggle. Especially as you struggle for the kingdom. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. Choose to change your perspective. Find the joy in the struggle. Find the joy in relying on Him for the strength that you need to get through. Find the joy of drawing closer and closer to Him the more dependent on Him you become. And continue to spread the kingdom. Some of you are here this morning and you know nothing about this type of struggle. 
the only struggles you face are the struggle of brokenness in your life. Whether it be from your decisions or decisions that are made around you or just the brokenness of the world that we find ourselves in. But you're looking for something. You're looking for that joy. You're looking for that strength to go on. You're looking for something to turn it all around, to give it purpose and to give it meaning, to give you hope. That comes only through one man, Jesus Christ. The man who suffered more than anyone else ever in the history of humanity. The man who was rejected even by his own. The man who bore our sin and our shame, all of it, on the cross. Yet the man of sorrows was a man of great joy. Because even in the midst of the suffering, he knew it was the only way to heal the relationship that was broken by sin that he so desired with you. The end goal made it all worth it. Viewing the suffering through the end goal Gave him joy. And if you want to know what that's like today, if you want some purpose, if you want some meaning, if you want to find that thing that's going to turn your life around, then I'd invite you after we close today to come find me here. Let's talk about what that really means. To really have a relationship with the one who can bring true joy. Not happiness. Not an end to all the suffering but someone who can show you what it means to have joy and hope and purpose even in the midst of the suffering. God, we thank you.